Welcome to another Christian Education National Podcast. Another episode where we bring you the audio of a presentation that has and hopefully will continue to encourage Christian educators. May it be an encouragement to you in your work for His Kingdom. Well, uh, greetings, uh, mutual cricket World Cup commiserations. Um, it, is, it is really good to be with you. Uh, so my name's Roshan. Um, I'll give you a bit of, bit of background, but, but first, just simply to say it is a real pleasure to be with you, uh, to be standing in the land of the Ghana people. Um, I bring lots of greetings from those involved in the diverse world of Christian education in, in Aotearoa, New Zealand. So, um, so in the name of Jesus, uh, who is Lord of heaven and earth, greetings to you all. Um, it is really good to be with you. So a little bit about me, um, because it will help frame the passions and, and kind of the what's driving what I'm going to talk to you about today. Uh, so my name's Roshan. Uh, you probably gather that's not a, a common uh, person of a common name for a person of my complexion. Um, so I come from a, a couple of generations of missionaries. So I was born in India, um, and am a product of Christian schooling myself. I went to Middleton Grange in Christchurch until uh, I was 12. Um, and then from, from my part, I felt a particular call to engage in wider conversations of, of the gospel and public life, um, and so got involved straight after university with a public policy think tank uh, that had a theological uh, frame to it. Uh, and that was an extraordinary experience, got involved in, uh, particularly in the Young Adults Leadership Program that they were running in Auckland. Uh, and for me, that drove a, a number of questions uh, around how do we form people who can do that bridging work? Uh, the life of the mind that Paul talks about, that distinctive uh, Christian renewed mind uh, that goes from the life of scripture and the authority that we have from God and that all the way through to what does this mean when it actually works out in all aspects of human life and existence. Uh, and so I had the, the, we had the sort of slightly unusual uh, disparate uh, session where we were running these conversations with young adults who are engaging with the world of public life and theology. Um, and also because we've been involved heavily in running uh, university groups and, and youth groups around Christchurch, and we moved to another city, to Auckland, uh, we watched a number of our friends from a distance uh, lose their faith. And recognising that for many of them, um, including many that I still count as good friends, uh, that kind of integrative piece between what does it mean to say that uh, Christ has done what he has done, and then what does it mean to actually work that out in the world, that there were a number of gaps in that. Uh, and so I guess for me, the, that uh, fixing that integrative piece and re-engaging that singular conversation uh, has been a life-driving uh, passion for me. Um, so for, that looked like uh, getting involved in some young adults leadership programs around Australasia. Um, and then particularly once we, we, we realised that we had a very well-developed vocabulary for talking about the personal transformation. Uh, that comes in Christ. What does it mean to say that, that uh, what God has done in Jesus transforms hearts and minds and lives? I then became increasingly interested in this, in this wider question that sits around that and is by no means secondary to it, which is simply this, what does it mean to say that what God has done in Jesus actually transforms societies, cultures, and history? Another, put, another way to put it is, what does it mean to say that the gospel actually works its way out in history? And so for my part, at least, I felt that I... Uh, I needed to do more work in order to be really confident of why I think this gospel that we all preach and know and love, um, in fact, makes an impact in the world. And why do we have confidence when we step out? And of course, for you all, um, and it is a very, very important vocabulary, you all doing the work of personal formation in classrooms and institutional schools, um, that is on behalf of a much wider story and a much wider story by which we seek to see Australia, 
the countries of the South Pacific and indeed the whole world in all facets of human existence transformed in the name of Jesus. What does that look like? And so as Simon rightly alluded to, the only marketable skill I have in life is storytelling. Um, and so I went and uh, did some history work looking at what does that look like in our uh, in history and looking for case studies, really, of what does it mean when groups who gather around the gospel and gather around the imperatives of the gospel uh, seek to work that out in their time and place with mixed faithfulness, as always is the case, but, but how do we then tell? And so what I want to do a bit today uh, is tell some stories out of that research uh, and not, not by way of recipe, I should just clarify, I'm not saying, you know, these people did these things in this time and this place and therefore we must exactly replicate that, uh, but hopefully by way of imagination sparking. And so what I'm going to do is tell a series of vignettes uh, over the next sort of 35, 40 minutes that I hope will spark uh, some thinking in your own minds and some join some dots uh, for you in terms of your own worlds. Um, and so a bit more about me, so obviously as Simon said, I, I lead Laidlaw College, uh, which is a, a tertiary college, a Christian higher education institution in New Zealand based in Auckland and Christchurch, uh, but we, we teach uh, in theology and teacher education, counselling and much more around, around Aotearoa. And uh, I'm also uh, I'm married to Lottie and we have three kids now, so uh, two wee girls, a five-year-old, a two-year-old and uh, a wee son who's a few weeks old. So um, thank you very much for having me with you. And so I want to start with two scenes, juxtaposing two scenes. And we're talking about the 18th and 19th centuries here, and we're talking primarily about the Anglophone British world. Um, so a world that is in many ways part of the lineage that we all sit, sit in ourselves. And we're talking about that period where uh, there's both been an extraordinary wave of, of urbanisation that's been going on through the 18th century, and an extraordinary, the beginnings of what will be this extraordinary journey of globalisation. Um, and into this mix, obviously, the evangelical renewal breaks out in the 1730s. And so scene one is this. This is uh, the King's Arms pub uh, in, just, out of, uh, just out of the city of London. Um, and this is a group of about 15 men gathered. And this is the, uh, this is the committee of a group called the Marine Society. Uh, 15 gentlemen on that uh, particular committee, uh, a mix roughly equal of clergymen and businessmen, merchants, bankers, and so forth. And the Marine Society is an unusual organisation, and I'll talk a little bit more about how unusual it was, but it's the first in 1756 of a new wave of organisations that basically pioneer the non-profit model of societal engagement uh, that we all know and work with today. Um, and scene one is this, this little group, 15 people gathered in a pub, basically running a project to work with young boys, uh, primarily boys, who'd found themselves unemployed and destitute in the streets of London. And they're working with uh, local parishes and working with merchant networks to basically do a kind of a sponsor a child program where they basically take these young boys, apprentice them in merchant service, put them in a ship, give them the, the, the requisite clothing and, and rope techniques and so forth, and then send them out for a seven-year apprenticeship and support them in that mode. Um, and through this particular series of, of connectivities, uh, the, um, the Marine Society in its first decade uh, brings about 2,000 children through this process um, and then creates a kind of virtuous feedback loop where they, uh, those children, then, they're, they're, uh, as they go on and, and work in the, in the marine uh, world and the merchant world, uh, begin to feed back money into bringing, bringing new boys through the system. So this is the beginnings of the humanitarian and philanthropic explosion in the British world. And these, these merchants and these clergymen are all evangelical. They are people who have been captured by this new sense 
uh, in the middle of the 18th century that the gospel that Jesus has preached has to actually have meaning in the world. And they're trying to wrestle with this question, well, how do we do it? Uh, not just through the conventional means of church and parish and diocese, but now through the fact that we find ourselves to be bankers and merchants uh, and financiers and, and all sorts of other connectivities. How do we actually use these gifts and talents? And this is the first uh, network for which the word philanthropist is coined and used. And so up until that period, uh, really up until the 1730s and 40s, the word philanthropy is primarily an adjective uh, that, is, that is used in English really usually to describe God. Uh, from the 1750s around this network, uh, the word becomes a noun, and people get up in the morning, and it becomes a vocational noun, and they say, I am a philanthropist. And philanthropy, obviously, from the Greek, the love of humanity. I am for the love of humanity. Uh, and so this creates a, a, a profound, but still in the 1750s, uh, very, very small network uh, that starts to engage in social and cultural change. So that's 1750. Fast forward 80 years. This is 1841, early 1841, and this is a crowd of a mere 4,500 people gathered in Exeter Hall in the Strand in central London. It's a purpose-built hall for philanthropic and humanitarian societies, mostly evangelical, uh, and this is the annual general meeting of the Anti-Slavery Society. There are 280 people on that stage, uh, and uh, in the, right in the centre on the throne you can see uh, Prince Albert, the Prince Consort, uh, about to get up to give the opening address for the annual general meeting of the Anti-Slavery Society. And this hall has been built to host the AGMs, the annual general meetings, of a network of evangelical, philanthropic and humanitarian organisations that by this period are engaging with uh, many, many hundreds of employees around the world, managing many, many hundreds of thousands of pounds of annual donations and income, and engaging in a vast variety of, uh, of works, uh, from Bible societies through to anti-slavery, indigenous rights, uh, and all sorts of other projects. The RSPCA is getting going in this decade, and so on and so forth. And so this is a really extraordinary story, how we go from the 1750s, 10 to 15 men in a pub, to 280 people on the stage. It's not, um, it's not an unbroken story of success. And one of the things I'll tell out just at, right at the end is some of the things that were lost as we get into the sort of mass world. Uh, but I want to tell the story because it's, I hope that in thinking through how did these particular networks over three generations across multiple continents, working through transnational networks and working through pretty much every sector of society imaginable. How did they actually seek to and affect social and cultural change? Um, the, the names of which you will know, people like William Wilberforce, Henry Thornton, and so forth, these, these luminaries, but this much wider network of social and cultural engagement. And so I want to just tell, to, to simplify, uh, really three vignettes through the story. So the first is, is this gentleman, um, John Thornton, uh, born in 1720, and John Thornton is part of a very particular network of merchants, the Russia Company. Uh, he, is an he becomes an evangelical in his early 30s uh, through the ministry of a man called Henry Venn, um, and he lives in a village called Clapham, shortly, uh, just, just outside of London. And John Thornton is one of those 15 men sitting around the Marine Society table. He's a very wealthy and very successful entrepreneur, uh, but he's also deeply mobilised by the gospel and deeply motivated. And he uh, seeks through his networks to turn his family networks, which are primarily Yorkshire-based, uh, to turn his, uh, his evangelical networks, which are these sort of this disparate group of clergy, really only about 50 uh, clergymen around the country in the 1750s through 70s, 
uh, who own that word and who are engaged in this kind of gospel renewal, um, and also his own merchant networks. And Thornton is coming from a very particular part of Britain's uh, mercantile community. He's coming from a group called the Russia Company, which is a little bit like the East India Company, except that unlike the East India Company, which, which has something like 800 employees and is managing the vast trade to the east, the Russia Company is managing an equivalently large trade up the Baltic to northern Europe, uh, but it really only has two employees. And so the Russia Company is managing everything through voluntary committees. And so that means that Thornton is participating in this quite intense culture of collaborative voluntarism. Uh, which he then starts to draw into his evangelical world and share as a mode of operating. And so the Marine Society, this committee that he is part of setting up, really bridges two different modes of philanthropical charitable work. Um, in, in one case, you have this sort of traditional Church of England model, uh, which had been to set up an endowment fund uh, to build an institution, uh, and to set it going in perpetuity. And the typical model is you stack the board with as many bishops and noblemen as you could, uh, and then you raise as much money as, you possible, as possible, you build a big building or buy a big block of land, and you set the thing going. And be it an orphanage or a hospital or any other kind of institution, you kind of create this missional perpetual motion machine. The, the other model that's, that's endemic in the early 18th century is uh, a, a much more mercantile mode, which is basically there is a problem, we form a committee, the committee lasts for weeks or months or however long it takes, the committee raises some money, does something creative, and then dissipates. And so you get this sort of, these, this sort of flash mob kind of charitable work going on all the time through the, through the 1730s, 40s, and 50s. And what Thornton and the Marine Society are able to do, by working with both clerical and mercantile networks, and particularly by working with people who are united by a common gospel, is to actually bridge these two models of, of working and to start to build new kinds of institutions that are missionally mobilized and missionally engaged, but also institution building. But not institution building instead of, in the sense of creating something that is static, creating an active institution that is constantly renewing itself. And part of what they're trying to do in the 1750s is, uh, is fix the problems that have been going on within the way in which the institutions of wider society have been quite understandably stretched by modernity. So, so brief summary, the parish, which is the, the, common, the most common uh, institution for the social, cultural, spiritual, and economic support of most people within England in the, in the middle of the 18th century, set up at the end of Elizabeth I's reign. Uh, the parish is really about 10 to 15 institutions, the, the overseers of the poor, the charity school, the vestry, and so forth, that, that really provide that wraparound for 600 to 1,000 people within about a 20 to 40 kilometer radius. Fast forward to the middle of the 18th century, and in urbanizing London, the parish might have 100,000 people that it's trying to support. Or in colonial North America or Australasia, the geography might be two to 4,000 kilometers, not 20 to 40 kilometers. Uh, and so it's remarkable that the parish actually does work uh, so, and does stretch uh, that far. But Thornton and these new entrepreneurs of philanthropy are engaging with how do we supplement and uh, think through what the parish can't do in this world where it turns out there are whole language communities that have never read the Bible. There are whole continents that have never had missionaries. There are whole, uh, whole social projects uh, and cultural and, and economic and socioeconomic needs that we had never imagined generations before. How do we, as people of the gospel, actually engage with this? And so the, the uh, Marine Society is one, and there is a profusion, a small profusion, of uh, entrepreneurial attempts during the 1750s through 70s. 
um, that basically are using mercantile networks around the Anglophone world and through the trading partnerships, particularly into Northern Europe, where they're engaging with equivalent pietist, uh, continental pietist experiments. So they're meeting with Germans, uh, Moravians, and, and so forth, and different upwellings of the gospel as they attempt to experiment in these kind of spaces. And what Thornton and others end up being is a kind of a transnational bridging network, a very small one and a very sparse one. At its peak in the 1770s, there's really only about 50 people involved. But what, what this starts to distinguish evangelical networks in the middle of the 18th century from almost every other uh, network of religious or cultural renewal at the time, because while you've got lots and lots of other networks that are engaged in deeply credible local social projects, you really have no other networks that I'm aware of that are both locally rooted and able to translate across multiple local contexts. And so you have networks like the Quakers and the Huguenots and others uh, and the Moravians who are very, very good at the transnational movement, very, very good at, uh, but they don't have local credibility. So they're not engaged in the life of the parish. They're not, in, uh, not, not across multiple contexts. Alternatively, you've got multiple renewal movements going on in some of the high Tory networks and the Anglo-Catholic movements and so forth in the middle of the 18th century, but they tend to be incredibly geographically localised. And so what evangelical vicars and clergymen and other local entrepreneurs start to do is develop local projects, but then they're engaging back and forth with these kind of network mediators like John Thornton, who are saying, that worked over there in Cornwall, what if it would work in Yorkshire? It works in Yorkshire, what if it would work in Calcutta? And so on and so forth. And these projects start to create feedback loops uh, by which things that are working spread. And so what that starts to look like is a kind of, um, so the Marine Society is one example. What that starts to look like is an increasing uh, model of cultural and entrepreneurial patronage. So, one, so John Thornton, being a wealthy man, um, ends up actually supporting something like 200 of these people within these networks, many of them clergymen, but a number of them not. Um, one of them, you would know, John Newton, uh, the, the name might be familiar to some of you, um, has a fascinating backstory, slave ship captain, um, goes on and becomes, has, a, has an astonishing encounter with Jesus, uh, goes on and becomes an Anglican vicar. And Newton moves to the parish of Olney in Bedfordshire, which is a very poor parish. It's a very deprived parish. And it's a parish that hasn't had a resident priest for something like two and a half to three generations. And so this is a, an undersalted community for the gospel. It's a very illiterate parish, so people aren't reading and they're not in the habit of attending church. And so Newton has this problem of how do you engage with these people? How do you disciple them? How do you meet their needs? Newton also, because of his own backstory and because of his pastoral heart, actually becomes a bit of a magnet, as far as I can tell, for basically every major depressed evangelical in the middle of the 18th century. And so, among others, he, he attracts people like William Cowper, um, an extraordinary poet, uh, but fighting off uh, quite crippling depression. And so Cowper and a number of others start living with Newton and his wife in their, their vicarage, uh, and, and they become a small community and they start to collaborate. And one of the collaborations that Newton and Cowper engage in is, is what becomes famously known as Olney Hymns. And they set about this question of how do we disciple an illiterate, non-attending parish? Um, and so what they come to is, well, what if we could write songs? What if we could teach them? And they start to write a collection of songs, and they group them in three ways. Um, and what becomes Olney Hymns has essentially three sub-collections. Um, uh, collection one, or book one, is On Selected Texts of Scripture. 
And this is roughly 212 hymns that basically take you through the entire narrative of Scripture. Um, there is at least one hymn for every book of the Bible. They're particularly fascinated with John. I think John has more than 20, 20 hymns associated with it. But this, these are hymns that are designed to help people engage with the imaginative world of Scripture, which is something I'll be talking about in my elective next session. Book two is called On Occasional Subjects. It's a very um, oblique title, but basically, uh, basically book two is on the rhythms of human life. Birth, death, marriage, seasons, harvest, Christmas, Easter. These are on the rhythms of doing life together. And they're, they're hymns that teach you how to, how to be. Um, and book three is on the progress and, and, and changes of the spiritual life. And this is a book on spiritual disciplines, on worship, on generosity, on fasting, on prayer. And these are hymns that teach people how to be Christians, how to engage in the praxis of Christian life. So Th Newton writes these with Cowper for Olney. He then sends the manuscript just out of sheer interest to his patron, John Thornton, who says, this is amazing. I would love to edit them. Could you send me more? And so Newton sends all the hymns. John Thornton personally edits them, translates them into multiple languages. And then because he's a merchant, he has access to three printing shops. He has all his printers print as many copies as he can and then uses his shipping networks to distribute them around all his other patrons and basically sends them a copy or a few copies of his book and says, this is working in Bedfordshire. Try it. And so two things happen. Firstly, a really great discipleship resource gets widely spread. <laughs> so that's, that's important. But secondly, a common culture starts to be formed across these diverse and disparate networks, many of which didn't even know that they had this common evangel in common. Um, and so you get stories as late as the 1790s. This is all happening in the 1770s. As late as the 1790s, we have stories of two men who meet in the streets of Calcutta, and they recognize that they both share a common faith because they're humming the same hymn. And they form a church together, which goes on to become quite an extraordinary, a merchant and a German missionary uh, in, in the streets of Calcutta, which goes on to be quite influential in the story of the gospel in Bengal. And so what's happening is these networks are forming and distributing new forms of generative culture that are deeply engaged with the gospel, but also engaged with societal and cultural need. So that's vignette one. Vignette two then takes us to this gentleman, Henry Thornton, who's one of John Thornton's sons. And Thornton, uh, John Thornton is an extraordinary, uh, extraordinary profligate with his hospitality. Uh, he's engaged in, in 50 different projects at any point. He's a, he's a great entrepreneur. And so his kids, he has four children, uh, three boys and then a daughter, um, and Henry Thornton is the youngest of the three boys. They grow up in a household in which this is part of the dinner table conversation. And so from, the, from childhood, you see them engaging through letters and journals uh, in these conversations quite actively. Uh, and so Henry Thornton himself, when he becomes an adult, writes for his own children recollections of what it was to sit at the dinner table and host Phyllis Wheatley, who was a black slave poetess from Philadelphia, and to realize that in this woman, this enslaved black woman from North America, is a fellow believer, a sister in Christ, and as a nine-year-old to engage then in ongoing correspondence with her when she returns to North America. Um, and so this was deeply formative to the imagination of these children. Uh, and so Henry Thornton himself then, when he becomes an adult, uh, he um, disappoints his mother by not going into the family business of, of merchant trade, but in fact becomes that disreputable 
profession even then, a banker. Uh, and, but he, he buys himself a house. Um, this is not a, a poor family. Um, he buys a, a house with 16 bedrooms uh, on the, the north side of the village of, of the, the Clapham Green, just out of London. And he decides to replicate the kind of conversational community that he has experienced in his father's household with his peers. And so he invites young men that he knows who have a common, common belief in Jesus to come and live with him, including his second cousin, the man called William Wilberforce, newly come to faith, um, including the brother-in-law of the Prime Minister, Edward Elliot, and so on and so forth. And so they form this small community. Um, and this community starts to grow and flourish and become a space where people are having conversations about what does it mean for the gospel to affect all things. And of course, because of the nature of this community, they really have two axes of what they're doing. They're living in Clapham, but one group of them are basically commuting daily to the city of London, which is increasingly emerging as the financial centre of the world, and the other are commuting daily to, to Westminster, which is of course becoming the imperial parliament in this period. Um, and so this quite well-positioned community engages. And so by the time you get to the 1790s, oh, apologies, just skip back. There we go. So by the time you get to the 1790s, this is the village of Clapham, and the names are probably unreadable uh, to most of you, but what you get is a, about a dozen different members of this community all having their own households. Um, and you will see the names uh, Thorntons, Wilberforces, you'll also recognise other names, Barclays, Gurneys. Uh, these are families that become quite influential in Britain's financial, economic, and global history. Uh, but in this period, they are friends who are meeting together in one parish worshipping together and engaging in small group life together and thinking through how does influence work. And so they do a lot of interesting projects. So for example, they set up what is a thing called the Clapham Bettering Society. There's a much longer title, the Society for the Bettering of the Poor in the Village of Clapham and its localities. I can't remember the fullness. Uh, but um, the Clapham Bettering Society, and they go and knock on every door. Uh, two and a half thousand households in Clapham, roughly half of them are relatively wealthy who are using Clapham as kind of a commuter suburb, uh, and the other half are basically economic refugees from, from Greater London um, who have moved out there because it's cheaper land. And so they begin to do things like local soup kitchens, like a charity school, like a reading a book society that is funding books for people who can't afford it, and so on and so forth. Um, and then because they're the, these kind of people, and they're networked into these vaster national and global networks, they're involved in setting up the national better, the British Bettering Society, which, when what that society does is take stories from all of these different local parishes, all of these different societies that are cropping up all over the place around evangelical parishes, and publishes them so that everyone can read the different experiments that are going on. And so it becomes a conduit for the, the interchange of communication. Um, what's also fascinating about the, um, the, how the, the group that becomes known as the Clapham Sect, how they start to form, um, is that as they engage in the famous projects, uh, things like anti-slavery and the formation of the missionary societies and all these things, the, the Sierra Leone Company, which founds the colony of Sierra Leone, as you do, um, they, they also become intellectual collaborators um, and they work intensively on developing a common theology. Um, and so we get pictures of it through their journals. This is Marianne Thornton, Henry Thornton's oldest son, uh, oldest daughter, sorry, so, um, so John Thornton's granddaughter, writing about her father's friends. Um, amongst our mercies, I think that of having valuable friends, one of the greatest. While I was at breakfast this morning, I looked around first on Mr. Henry Thornton, that's her father, then on Lord Tainmouth, and then on Mr. Venn, arranging plans for Mr. Wilberforce coming down uh, to, to dinner. I could not but think with gratitude and humility 
uh, I was thus I was to be blessed to be thus admitted into the society of the excellent of the earth, and so this kind of this picture of basically communities where intergenerational families are gathering round, and we have stories of you know uh, Wilberforce would would go to bed. Uh, early in the morning because he'd often have been up all night giving speeches in Parliament. He would go to bed, they would get up in the morning and they would read folios of anti-slavery material, condense it, then some of the, the better wordsmiths would write it up into speeches in the afternoon and the children would be engaged and, and, and engaging in this kind of praxis. Then they would hold court for the different emissaries coming from the different parts of these networks. Uh, and then Wilberforce would get up read the speeches, go off to Parliament, give the speeches, and then come back and rinse and repeat. And for brief periods, we're talking weeks and months, you have this kind of intensive collaborative community that forms and dissipates through the rhythms of family and business and annual life. And so what this is starting to do is form a common intellectual school. So as I say, these individuals are engaging in core theological conversations, very deep reflection on the gospel, but they are working it out in multiple different multiple different ways. Um, and so what it starts to look like is Henry Thornton's work on business and economics. And Thornton actually goes on to become arguably the political economist of his generation. Um, among his many achievements, he invents modern-day reserve banking. Um, so he's the guy who responds to Adam Smith on what paper credit is and paper currency, and basically says it's got nothing to do with net wealth. It's all to do with confidence, business consumer confidence. And that the measure of the health of a nation and the health of an economic system is in fact the measure of how much people are trusting each other and trusting the whole. And that the paper, the paper supply should reflect that. And we need these institutions called reserve banks to manage that. And he's doing so on theological grounds. And it's a fuller conversation if anyone loves political economic history. But he's reworking Locke's understanding of fighters of faith and thinking through how deep does God's uh, God's reliance on faith in humans go. And they're taking the same idea of trust and faith and confidence and, and taking it across multiple spheres. So Thomas Gisborne writes the book of moral theology, which is the text at Cambridge and Oxford for nearly 80 years. Uh, and he reworks the idea of duty, social and cultural duty, through the lens of faith and trust. Thomas Babington, the great theorist of families for the early Victorian age, writes on how parents and children should be working to build reciprocal trust. Um, and it's an extraordinary um, account, especially in light of um, some of the later debates that go on around the Victorian family. Um, James Stephen, the brilliant lawyer, is absolutely demolishing the pro-slavery argument, not interestingly on human dignity grounds, although that's a factor, but actually on the way in which slavery as an institution uh, erodes societal trust, and therefore, in his mind, the conditions for wider human flourishing. And so you have this common intellectual and cultural school meted out in about 15 different disciplines, where in each of them, you've got Hannah Moore writing novels, some of the most uh, popularly read novels of her generation, and in each of them you see the same thread of theological engagement that you find nowhere else in the evangelical literature of this time. And so we know from their journals and writings that they're editing each other's books. This is what they're talking about over their dinner and breakfast tables. And so they're not just entrepreneurs, but also quite deep thinkers and engagers in their own right. And so let me, just by way of drawing some threads together, uh, give you two examples of what this starts to look like 
intergenerationally. Um, so the first example is this. In, in the 1760s, John Thornton gets approached by an entrepreneur from Connecticut, a guy called Eliezer Wheelock, who started a thing called the Indian Charity School. Um, it's the first attempt in that part of the world to, f to have a college, an educational institution, that is primarily engaged with the formation of indigenous missionaries to indigenous tribes. And so they're training North American indigenous peoples for the work of the gospel further west. Um, and Eliezer Wheelock basically sends people to, to England to raise money for this project. Um, they fail. They don't raise even enough to cover really the travel costs. And so they end up kind of dis uh, despondent. And John Thornton is one of the last people on their speaking tour. And Thornton says, this is interesting because you've got a great story and this is a phenomenal project. Um, maybe we can help. And so what he does is he sets up a thing called the, uh, the English Trust of the Indian Charity School. Um, this is its minute book, uh, and they start meeting. And he gathers about nine bankers and businessmen and a couple of noble, evangelical noblemen. And what they do is they set up personal bank accounts in, all of the, in, all, in John Thornton's name all the way around the country in all the major centres. And then they send these two ambassadors, uh, a guy called uh, Samson Ockham and a guy called Nathaniel Whitaker, on a speaking tour around England. The same speaking tour that they'd done a few months earlier. But this time, they're saying, don't put money in a coffer if you want to give money to this project, you can deposit it in your local bank. Just go in and deposit it in the name of this trusted merchant who has trusted credit networks, John Thornton. Um, and so they raised £10,000, which is an extraordinary amount of money, within about a six-week window. And it's one of the most phenomenal examples of, of fundraising in that period. Um, what's really fascinating, though, uh, the project itself goes on to be, into a few relational problems, and I won't go into those, but basically, long story short, uh, Eliezer Wheelock uh, basically gives up on the frontier and moves the college back to the safety of New Hampshire, where it gets rebranded Dartmouth College after one of the evangelical founders, and that goes on then primarily to train British colonists uh, in, in, um, in a wide variety of things, and Dartmouth College continues to exist today. But those nine bankers that Thornton had gathered, and those, that network of banks uh, that he gathers through his personal credit networks in the 1760s, don't forget what they accomplished together, and so they start to collaborate. And in 1773, four years after this, uh, there's a major financial crisis in Britain, and about a third of the banks in, in London go under. Um, and so they, they realise, oh, why don't we meet together to manage each other's risk? And so they start meeting. The, uh, instead of what had happened at the end of most days in the banks, is all the banks would send a clerk to all the banks that they owed money to to clear their debts. They start meeting together in the back of one of the banks, Martins, uh, run by Ambrose Martin, one of, the, one of the members of this group, uh, and they start swapping debt together. And what that means is when one of the banks is struggling to meet its credit obligations in a financial crisis, the others can all decide whether they want to help out. So they're actually sharing financial information and managing risks together. And that becomes the beginnings of the London Clearinghouse, the origins of London as a, as a kind of collaborative financial hub. But of those eight banks that are then collaborating in the London Clearinghouse, uh, seven are controlled by evangelicals and one is controlled by Quakers, Barclays. Uh, and those eight banks then go on to build this collaborative network around Britain, um, a network of country banks, um, such that by the time Henry Thornton, John Thornton's son, gets involved in one of those banks, um, Henry Thornton is then personally able to use these credit networks to set up a, a network of about 40, I think 37 in this particular map, um, affiliate banks around 
England, which becomes really critical when Henry Thornton in the 1790s and 1800s becomes treasurer of a number of key societies, including in 1799 the Church Missionary Society and in 1804 the Bible Society. And so what is happening to these evangelical societies is they're, going through, they're, they're, they're raising money, but they're hitting a fundraising ceiling. And like most of you who do fundraising will appreciate this, the fundraising ceiling is basically the net social capital of the board. Um, so if you've got a really strong board, you, you get up higher, but you can't get beyond that. Um, and so what Thornton realises is that every society he's the treasurer for raises a certain amount of money, but then it plateaus and they can't grow beyond this. And so he basically has this eureka moment where he's like, well, we have this network of country banks who we've got a really good trusted economic relationship with. They're mostly evangelicals, because those are my friends. Why don't we tap that? And so what he does is he basically writes a letter as treasurer of the Bible Society to all his local affiliates, his banking affiliates, and he says, basically, congratulations, you're now the president or treasurer of the local Bible Society affiliate, <laughs> uh, former committee, and we will use our trusted economic relationship and the fact that we can remit money cheaply and in high confidence to raise money. And so this is what that starts to look like. So um, the red line is the, uh, the, the amount of money raised by the Bible Society. And you see, uh, founded in 1804, so the first income year is 1805. You can see the beginnings of the plateau in 1808, and that's when Thornton starts to act. He forms the first auxiliary societies in early 18, late 1808, early 1809. And so the Bible Society, which had been looking at a plateau of something like about 15,000 pounds a year, which was nowhere near enough to hit their target of 10 million Bibles within their first decade, suddenly experiences this absolutely astronomical exponential growth because all of Henry Thornton's local banks, or his banking partners, are now raising money all throughout the counties of England. And, what th it's, and, and so the Bible Society, by 1815, just shortly after the Napoleonic Wars, is basically broaching £100,000 of repeatable ongoing annual income, which is the kind of measure in the middle of the, 18, in the early 18th, 19th century that, um, that's shown up on GDP <laughs> kind of scales. This is lots of money. What's really fascinating is when Thornton does the rounds uh, as treasurer to go around and speak to all these societies, uh, congratulating them and you know, building, the, building the rapport, in none of his speeches that I can find does he talk about the extraordinary amount of money that they've raised. I mean, you know, he mentions it casually, but it's not the focus of his address. The focus of his address is how they have built networks of trust for the gospel. And there's some extraordinary stories um, and extraordinary quotations about, uh, of the, the way that the directors are thinking about, the way that these, these auxiliary societies facilitate emotional and cultural participation in the work of the Bible Society, such that hundreds of thousands of people by the, by the, by the 1820s are being drawn into this singular project to get the word of God out to the world. And of course, no local parish can do that because local parishes can't own printing, can't build large-scale printing presses. They certainly can't endow chairs of linguistics at Cambridge and Oxford University, which is what the Bible Society starts to do. And they certainly can't then translate languages, or translate grammars and, and, and the, the biblical text at scale which is what the Bible Society is starting to do by the end of the 1810s. And so this story of how a small collaboration that actually starts in a missions uh, seed in the 1760s becomes a networked model that intersects both theological and evangelical imperatives, but also economic systems, and reinvents the way that nonprofits raise money. 
is actually quite an, quite an integrated story of how these networks are operating. And also, critically, it's an intergenerational story. Um, another just very simple example which touches on the educational uh, dynamics of these networks. So one of the projects that the Clapham set get themselves in, incredibly involved in is, of course, the missionary project. I'd mentioned how a philanthropy and philanthropist goes through that linguistic change from, from a, an adjective uh, to a vocational noun in the 1750s. So the word missionary goes through the same career journey. So up until about the 17, early 1780s, the word missionary is almost exclusively in the English language an adjective. It is to describe something. From the 1780s, the late 1780s and early 1790s, that word becomes a vocational noun. So there are people who get up in the morning and say, I am a missionary, not I'm, I'm a, going out as, in a missionary mode or as a missionary chaplain or as a missionary uh, adventurer or whatever, but I am a missionary. And this is part of that whole mode where, where missionary societies are, are cropping up left, right and centre. The Church Missionary Society, which is by the early 19th century by far the largest um, in terms of its reach and its ability to intersect the various different arms of the British world, um, goes through the same growth curve just about two years after the Bible Society, primarily because of the fact that Henry Thornton is also the treasurer, and so he applies exactly the same fundraising model, and, and, and the board is very similarly overlapped. It's all of these merchant evangelicals with Russia Company roots and Yorkshire family connections. Uh, and so the Church Missionary Society is really struggling, though, to get any project to take significant purchase. So they're sending out missionaries. Uh, they're trying to, anyway, and they're trying to launch projects they're founded in 1799, all through that first decade of the 19th century. And, and very few of them really succeed. And the, the real problem is people. They're struggling to recruit good people. And they get very desperate. They reach through their merchant networks into northern Germany, actually start to fund German-speaking missionaries out into the field because they cannot find good people. From about 1815, the tide turns. And you go from having just a few decent applicants coming into the society every year to well over 50, and then by the end of the decade, well over 100 solidly good applicants who are writing in every year, almost uh, without solicitation, and offering their services. And so there is this tidal turn where a whole new group of people suddenly decide that being a missionary is, in fact, their life's calling. What generates that turn, and there's, there's, there's many different threads of this, but give, let me give you a very simple account to illustrate the importance of education in this. One of the very early projects that the nascent Clapham sector had gotten involved with in spreading around Britain in the 1780s was they'd met a man through a business relationship called uh, uh, Robert Rakes. Uh, Robert Rakes was, had trialled this new model of educating children on a Sunday afternoon. So previously, and he was in Gloucester, previously he'd watched all the kids, the, the parents basically go straight to the pub, the kids run wild on a Sunday afternoon. He has this, this light bulb moment where he says, what if I paid them a penny a month to come and learn? and he calls it a Sunday school. And so there's these, these things called Sunday schools start to work in Gloucester. Rakes' brother, Thomas Rakes, is living in Clapham. He's a, an East India Company merchant. And so he tells the story to this small group of young entrepreneurs who say that's fantastic, and they set up the Society for the Promotion of, um, of Sunday Schools. Sorry, that's not actually the right slide. Um, and so the Society for the Promotion of Sunday Schools propagates this model of Sunday schools all around England and increasingly around the British Empire. Um, and they start doing it in the 1780s, so that during the 1790s there's this massive growth in this model of education and how you do it and how you form people in biblical reading and in literacy and so forth. 
And it turns out that the distance between 1787 and about 1815 to 17 is about a generation. <laughs> That's roughly what it takes for people who've grown up and been children in Sunday schools, who've been shoulder tapped to teach, who've then been trusted and will run the Sunday school, and have been reading this literature that's been used to teach, that's telling them the stories about the needs of the, go uh, the gospel needs that are around the world. That generation are the group who write. And so the narratives of these, in the 1815 to 1820, this wave of applicants to the missionary societies, they all tell their life story in their, their letter. And, the, letter, and the, the life story is virtually the same. I was a young person. I you know, came from a poor family. Um, the local vicar grabbed me and put me in a Sunday school uh, and then thought I was quite exceptional. And so I was encouraged to teach the Sunday school and paid to do that. And as I learned to read and engage with scripture and read these evangelical magazines that we were using as teaching literature and so on and so forth, I found my heart warm, strangely warmed. And so during my teens, I read more and I studied, and then I got an apprenticeship or I did some other thing, or I went and got further training in medicine or, or something like that. And here I am in my mid-twenties, 20 years later, offering myself for service, send me where you will. And so this, this, uh, the global missionary movement owes so much. Call it the providence of the spirit, call it the confluence of uh, diverse networks, however you want to think about it. The global missionary movement owes so much of its early mass success to the fact that 20 years earlier, 20 years before it was in, before the wave of missionaries were needed, a movement gets going that is actually starting to form people for that kind of work, not always intentionally, um, but, but, uh, but in a widespread way. So let me just round up very quickly. So these networks then continue. Um, and what you start to see is people are forming new vocational pathways. Um, so one example, um, Sir James Stephen, uh, the son of James Stephen, confusingly, um, is one of the young boys who then grows up in Clapham in these houses. And so he's watching his father and his father's friends and his, his, his mother, who's a brilliant writer and, 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 and um, teacher herself. Um, his stepmother actually is, is Wilberforce's sister. Um, his mother dies early. Um, and so he's watching this engagement going on in his home life. He goes on and becomes quite a brilliant lawyer, gets involved in a number of these boards uh, in his teens and 20s. Uh, and then as, he, um, as he's forging his career as a lawyer, he starts to feel this tug towards uh, particularly what's going on in the, in the growing colonial empire. Um, so he has a really strong sense uh, from the 1820s that some of the, the way in which indigenous peoples and so forth are being engaged with is not in fact just, and that there might be something that he needs to do about it. So he actually goes and takes a contract with the colonial office to sort of discern, um, and basically then takes a permanent role, takes a massive pay cut, goes and becomes, and eventually, uh, 10 years later, becomes undersecretary for the colonies. Uh, and so Sir James Stevens in times it at a really interesting moment because he, um, in the middle of the 1830s, is really no political oversight of the colonial office. Um, there's a, a, a chain, rapid change in ministerial oversight. And so he basically has the opportunity to reorganise the colonial office. Um, and so he is the one who inserts into the British policy the so-called dual mandate, um, which in our context leads to the Treaty of Waitangi with Māori tribes, this idea that the British government on humanitarian grounds must in fact attempt to, and in fact sometimes does, although not perfectly, um, respect the indigenous rights 
of peoples that they encounter, and so forth. And so Stephen has an inordinate influence in the way in which the humanitarian conversation heads off, not all, but some of the worst tendencies of what will become the extensive waves of settler colonisation in the 1840s and 50s. Um, and, and I guess the, the, um, the counterfactual is if he had not put these restraining policies in place, um, it would have been a very different um, and much more expansive story um, of, of, of injustice. So Stephen himself then, reflecting on these stories, uh, as an older man, retired and moving into, moving into the later years of life, actually goes back and starts to write the stories of what he had, um, what he had remembered. And re he remembers a picture of people centred on the gospel, engaging with wider society. And he, he writes a year after his own father's death, and two weeks after William Wilberforce's death, he writes to the last surviving member of the Clapham sect, a guy called Thomas Babington. And he writes this letter. As the shadows grow longer and the evening of this transient existence closes in upon us, so this is talking about Wilberforce, the hopes which then draw nearer their accomplishment must be greatly sustained by the recollections of such a friend. In him you have a proof of the truth and the value of the principles on which you so long acted together, which it was impossible to possess with equal force and distinctiveness while you and he were younger. For the happiness of your own immediate circles, I trust it may yet please God to give a prolongation of life. But whenever it shall be his pleasure to call you to himself, it will be to be reunited to the fellow laborers in his service who have gone before you. There are children and grandchildren to follow in their appointed order, many of whom have been confidently guided by your counsels and animated by, by your example to engage in the same warfare from evil within and from without, in which your lamented friend was more than conqueror. With such prospects and with such remembrances, I should esteem you a very happy man, even if the pressure of bodily infirmity were more severe than it is. It has, however, been the gracious dispensation of providence, not only to keep, you round, to keep round you those whom you have loved the best and longest, but to impart to you a serenity of mind and a sleepless interest in all that concerns the happiness of your fellow creatures, which are still more fertile sources of enjoyment. And 12 years later, after Thomas Babington himself has passed away and there are none left, uh, he writes to his wife, where are the people who were at once really religious and really cultivated in heart and in understanding? The people with whom we could associate, as our fathers used to associate with each other. There is no clapping sick nowadays. So I just want to really close with, with a, a couple of thoughts. I'll leave that slide up. This is a story of intergenerational transmission. When we're thinking about social and cultural change, especially out of the gospel, and what better way to think about a story that has at its heart the hope beyond death any, any account and any model of social and cultural change that I know that's worth its salt basically says that if you're going to tackle a complex and difficult social and cultural issue, like anti-slavery, uh, like urban poverty and so forth, it takes 80 years, three generations. And so this is a story of three generations, of how they engage with the same kinds of questions around the same core theological convictions, but also how they then focused on transmission, which is why what you do is so critically important. The second, I guess, is, is the way in which they consciously cultivate a particular imagination. So what you're seeing, and I think you're seeing it most profoundly and eloquently in James Stevens' writings, but you see it in Henry Thornton, you see it in every stage in the process. These are people who are consciously telling their own story. And, and not, not, not unhumbly, <laughs> not proudly, but these are people who are passing on a vocational baton intentionally. This is what our family does. This is what our community does. This is what our tradition is. We engage in this kind of way. 
and they're building a story that is then incredibly active and proactive and adapting, and they're building institutions that do that as well. And then thirdly, they're doing deep work. This is not some surface engagement. This is not some series of pot shots at, um, at flare-up issues. These are people who are setting themselves long-term tasks. And to take the most famous example of their engagement, anti-slavery, there is a reason why it takes 40 years from the, um, the evangelical renewal in the 1730s to the first flourishings of the of anti-slavery movement, and then in another 30 years after that to really even the first success, and then another 15 to 20 years after that until they finally actually stamp it out. Um, because these are intractable and difficult issues, and it takes the first 40, to 40 years to even build the theological grounding and the institutional and network infrastructure to begin to imagine an anti-slavery society. It then takes another 20 years for that net, those networks to get any purchase on the social, cultural, and institutional life. And so through all this, the intergenerational transmission of mission and of theological conviction is so vital. And so I guess I tell these stories, again, not to say that we all need to go out and find our own equivalent of anti-slavery or any of these other headline issues. But as you engage in the work of classroom, of institution building, of culture building, please tell these kind of stories. Find stories, good ones, and there are many examples. I could have picked 15 to talk from. This just has, is nice because all the quotations are in English. Um, there are such good stories of what it looks like when networks of people shaped by this common story, this hope that we have in Jesus, actively seek to engage in intergenerational social and cultural change and work out palpably and really and impactfully what it looks like for the gospel to transform their society and culture. So I will stop there. I have spoken well enough, but I hope that's been engaging and interesting, and we, I'd love to talk more. If anyone has any questions, we probably have time for one, maybe two. <laughs> Do, does anyone have any burning questions or critiques or you know challenges? Sorry. Uh, some of them, yeah. So, um, so some of this is coming from my own research, and so book to be <laughs> to be published. Got the contract. It's just I have a quite a busy day job at running a college, <laughs> and so um, my own research and writing time has been a little bit stripped away this last two years. Also, family. Um, so I'm working on it. Um, but I, I mean, we do have some articles and things that are, that I've written on this. Um, mostly exploring particular threads. I, I guess the one I'm most interested in, oh, there's, there's multiple ones, but it depends on the audience, but intergenerationality, I think, is one that I'm really working on at the moment. Um, but yeah, so the, the book should be coming out hopefully in a couple of years, because uh, it's going to be an academic work first, um, and then, um, then there'll be a popular text after that. Thank you. Sorry, mate. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's, you mean in terms of the wider discourse going on? Yeah, and, and I think it's no surprise. I think that um, people are coming round to the idea that a few, that structures and inner life turns out actually work together. You know, so what I think the gospel's been saying to us for quite some time is it actually matters who you are, but then uh, inner transformation isn't enough if it doesn't 
overflow. And I remember someone writing something about it at some point, you know, that, that the sense in which the inner life has to actually work itself out. Mm. The reasonably common thing from the New Testament. So, um, so yeah, so uh, network analysis, structure theory, and so forth are a huge part of this. And, and so if you want to... I'm obviously telling stories, but I'm, I'm well aware that I'm dancing across a number of quite interesting literatures. Um, and so if anyone wants to have those kind of conversations about saying... Um, how, methodologically, how do we think about this, and theologically, and, and kind of within a wider Christian frame, how do we actually understand these relationships? Because I think historically, and I'll speak more about this in my next session, um, but I think the evangelical church has been particularly uh, particularly uh, well, poorly served by our separate, separation of these things. Um, and we have not seen that they always flow together. And so part of what I'm trying to do is tell that's why history is a fun discipline, if anyone wants to study it. Um, tell integrated stories, because these people lived integrated lives. Henry Thornton is not just an economist. He's also a dad, and a politician, and a philanthropist, and a worshipper, and all the other things. He eats breakfast. <laughs> and so he experiences one life. So who are we to try and separate these things out? Um, so yeah, so I'd love to have the, if anyone wants to explore some of the intellectual threads that you've probably heard um, hinted at <laughs> and what I've said and some of the, the literature threads, I'd love to engage. Terrific. Um, can you please join me in thanking Roshan? Thank you.